Arlington police say protests Monday remain generally peaceful, but say there were, quote, several agitators. Send me another unit, please. Send me another unit. Look what you did to my store. This is a movement, I'm telling you. They're not going to stop. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All right. Welcome back to Into the Fray. I want to start this week with a thank you to Tim Poole for the shout out on his IRL podcast. I'm still just starting out and I'm still very small, and I'm pretty sure more than 350,000 people watched that IRL episode. The exposure was huge. So thank you, Tim. I promised the Kyle Rittenhouse story a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't want to push it off too far, because I know the story has huge implications. For anyone listening who thinks this is just a story about a kid who shot some people, or even just a story about a kid who defended himself with a rifle, I hope I've changed your mind by the end of the episode. This incident and the legal case developing from it have implications for all of us. Right now, Kyle Rittenhouse is in an Illinois jail awaiting decisions regarding extradition and trial in Wisconsin. His mother and sister have been doxxed, and their lives have been threatened. He's currently facing first-degree murder charges, which may actually be a blessing. If the prosecution follows through on overcharging him, it may guarantee his acquittal. I was actually watching the live streams coming out of Kenosha that night. After two nights of burning entire blocks to the ground over a man who tried to steal a car and kidnap children, and who pulled a knife on the officers who tried to stop him, Kenosha was front and center. I should probably go back a bit and fill you in on what's been happening. I think there's some context here that needs to be framed to really appreciate that night. The first thing that has to be addressed here, though most of you are probably already familiar, is that the Kenosha riots were sparked when a man named Jacob Blake was shot by police as he was committing all the crimes I just listed. For that, Black Lives Matter came out with their signs and their chants and torched entire city blocks in the town. Now, there have been a lot of casualties in these riots, and the citizens of Kenosha were all too aware how far these protests could escalate. I was watching the Louder with Crowder riot stream in real time when Elijah Schaefer captured footage of a man beaten and kicked unconscious for trying to protect his store. I will probably never forget the sight of his limp body laying twisted awkwardly bleeding in the street. Then there was the guy in Portland who tried to stop Black Lives Matter rioters for attacking a trans person and ended up getting punted in the head and knocked flat out. There have already been a number of people pulled from their cars and beaten. I've already covered the Provo, Utah incident where a driver was shot for trying to make a right turn to leave the area. The day before the Kenosha shooting, Elijah Schaefer released a video that included interviews with two different business owners. Legacy Media has impugned business owners and their friends for arming themselves and protecting their businesses. Listen to what happened to those who didn't. We own this building, that building, that building, this building, which are all all destroyed. Um, And when we came on scene, it was just uh, uh, carnage. So basically, if I had to sum it up in a word, it would be just total carnage. I just don't understand why why this something like this would happen. Um, it's it's just uh, it's frustrating. I don't understand why people do these things. You can hear the heartbreak in his voice. These businesses that are being destroyed, looted, smashed, burned to the ground. These businesses are how these people feed their families. It's how they pay their mortgage. I think a lot of people who have never owned a business think that every business owner is Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, that they just have gobs of cash that they can swim in like Scrooge McDuck. This couldn't be further from the truth. In a lot of cases, small business owners are bringing in less take-home pay than the average office admin. 
The goal is to build a business to where they can retire comfortably, but that usually takes decades of diligent work. In that last cut, you heard the voice of a man looking at decades of diligent work smashed. In the next cut, from the same video, you're going to hear the voice of a man looking at generations of diligent work torched to the ground. This morning, get up, come down here, and I, I, what I see, I was not prepared for. I knew it was going to be a disaster, but I didn't know what a disaster looked like till I saw it. And you, and you, I can hear the the emotion in in just in what you're saying. I mean, what is what is the family feeling right now? It's tough. Um, you know, this is a business that that my parents started 40 years ago, small out of their garage. It was a, it was a small business. Uh, did it just to make a few extra dollars, and eventually it grew. Um, 31 years ago, they bought this building, and so we've been here ever since. Um, they they're very upset about it. It's emotionally hurtful uh, what we didn't do anything to anybody you know, why did we deserve it that man was standing in front of a flame licked brick exterior and on the interior you can see nothing but ash in another video elijah walks through one of several torched car dealerships from the day before and i watched plenty of live streams of people smashing up dealership lots with any tool they could find this is what sets the stage for night three black lives matter rioters had two nights of pretty much free reign they were revved for night three, and the business owners were realizing that if they didn't defend their businesses, then those businesses were going to be gone. Citizens banded together and armed themselves, some of them putting out the call for help when they came up short. Like most catastrophes, natural or man-made, the information that comes out of the hot zone tends, at first, to be fragmented and contradictory. This one was no different. It took about a month to get a decent picture of what happened that night, and to sift out the lies and the spin. So let's go to the beginning of the incident. This is where I think this thing really begins. Why was Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha in the first place? For that, we turn to Cassandra Fairbanks at the Gateway Pundit. Now, legacy media would have you believe that Rittenhouse loaded up his gear and his rifle and drove to Kenosha to be part of the action. When the story first broke, there was quite a lot of buzz around the legal implications of him crossing state lines underage with a rifle. But that's not what happened. Kyle Rittenhouse was a lifeguard at the community pool in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is only about 30 minutes from his hometown of Antioch, Illinois. He worked there the day of the incident. From the article, in a statement by Rittenhouse's legal team at Pierce Bainbridge, provided to the Gateway Pundit, they explained that after Kyle finished his work that day as a community lifeguard in Kenosha, he wanted to help clean up some of the damage, so he and a friend went to the local public high school to remove graffiti by rioters. There is an accompanying photo of Rittenhouse and others cleaning graffiti in Kenosha that day. The article continues the statement. Later in the day, they received information about a call for help from a local business owner, whose downtown Kenosha auto dealership was largely destroyed by mob violence. The statement continues. Business owner needed help to protect what he had left of his life's work, including two nearby mechanic shops. Kyle and a friend armed themselves with rifles due to the deadly violence gripping Kenosha and many other American cities, and headed to the business premises. The weapons were in Wisconsin and never crossed state lines. A lot of people have suggested that Kyle should not have been there that night. I want to say right here, I agree. Kyle should not have been there that night. But I'm going to wait until we've covered what happened before I tell you why I think that. Rittenhouse and a few others posted up in the mechanic shop, which was under the most immediate threat from the mob. Now, this part I'm going to account for myself because I watched it happen live. A fair bit of this comes from live streams from CJTV and Mercado Media, but there were a number of streams I was following that night. The Black Lives Matter rioters started out at a park across the street from the courthouse. 
When they were dispersed from there, they headed up the street. As they started to do damage, the police pushed them further and further up the street, trying to disperse them. Copious amounts of CS gas was used at the park, and they continued using it as they went. They came rolling in some serious armored vehicles, which was a good thing because the Black Lives Matter rioters weren't holding back. They had fireworks, hammers, rocks, bricks. I saw dozens of guns in that crowd. At one point, you could overhear someone trying to convince another person not to kill a third person because there were too many cameras around. I watched the confrontation at the gas station that we're going to get to, and as the police pushed the BLM rioters on, there came a point where the mechanic shop where Kyle Rittenhouse was posted up took some collateral tear gas. Though I didn't know him from Adam at the time, I watched Kyle, rifle slung over his shoulder, pass from armored vehicle to armored vehicle asking for bottled water to help someone who had been gassed. Over the next few days, I'd end up seeing interviews that showed that he was out there to help anyone who needed it, including rioters, without judgment and without reservation. He was there to do good in a bad situation. We need more people like that. The officers in the armored vehicles tossed down some water, and then, before they drove away, they got on the PA and told the armed civilians that they really appreciated them and what they were doing. That is a huge point in this story that I only saw reported in one article, and the author's derision was palpable. That was the last I saw of Kyle on the live stream until the shots rang out. And at the time, I was watching CJTV, who put his camera down to help apply a tourniquet to Gage Grosscruz, the guy who got his bicep vaporized when he tried to shoot Kyle point blank. So now I'm going to jump back into the sources that came out in the days and weeks following the incident. According to Richie McGinnis, when he went on Timcast IRL, at some point, Kyle had a confrontation with people who were jumping on cars earlier in the evening. I can't find any more details on it. He mentioned it in passing as he was describing why a particular group of BLM rioters was angry with Kyle later on. There's video of that as well. In a video compilation from the Daily Caller, you can see Kyle walking down the street calling out to see if anyone needs medical assistance. He's called over by a group of men who start accusing him of having told them to get off of cars they were damaging earlier in the night. Kyle doesn't engage at all. The moment he realizes where this is going, he turns and walks away resuming his call-out for anyone who needs medical assistance. Now, there's an incident that did not involve Kyle that may be important to why events played out the way they did. Before the shooting, there was a confrontation that took place at the gas station across the street from the mechanic shop that Kyle and the others were protecting. One of the primary aggressors was the first person to chase after Rittenhouse, Joseph Rosenbaum. Rosenbaum and others lit a dumpster on fire and were pushing it to a gas station that was protected by armed civilians. Those armed civilians rushed out into the street to stop the dumpster, and one of them came with a fire extinguisher and put it out. Needless to say, the BLM rioters weren't real happy about that. I'll take a moment to point out that if they had succeeded in igniting the gas station, it almost certainly would have blown them up as well. Nothing says, I'm fighting injustice, like accidentally blowing yourself up. I am the smart! I am the smart! S-M-R-T. At this point, the Black Lives Matter rioters came onto the gas station property and started getting up in everyone's faces. Here's Elijah Schaefer on Timcast IRL. Because I don't know if they were connected. I don't know if Kyle's group and the other group at the gas station were connected, but I know how the anger started towards these yeah, people, right? They were putting the fires yes. out. So they put this fire out, but here's where it got really heated. So everyone got mad, and this is when it started being, oh, F-U-N word, blah, 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 going in this direction. So then the rioters take a dumpster and they steal these, you know, those like advertising flags, those tall ones from like a Boost Mobile store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they start stuffing them in a dumpster that they took from the side of a residential business or a residential house next to a, the gas station. And they light it on fire and then they pushed 
the dumpster on fire towards the gas station. This is one of the dangers of mob mentality. There's a diffusion of responsibility in the crowd. No one individual is going to push a flaming dumpster at a gas station. But in a crowd, everyone puts responsibility for the decision on everyone else, just going along with what's happening. The false sense of anonymity that comes with being a part of a large rabble allows these rioters to delude themselves that they don't carry responsibility for what the crowd is doing. That anonymity is dissolving as Black Lives Matter and Antifa learn that YouTube is forever, but as they've gained experience, they've started coming out with umbrellas and assaulting journalists to cover their crimes. This diffusion of responsibility also seems to cause a diffusion of intelligence, where no one seems to feel responsible for thinking through the consequences of their actions. So they immediately come over, uh, the, the groups defending the property, and put out the fire. That's what started the major altercations, was the fact that they were putting out fires near a gas station is what really escalated the tensions. And people forget that, is that the reason why these people were mad, despite them threatening, was predominantly over putting out fires that could have threatened not only the business, but everyone who was there. So my Twitter, at Elijah Schaefer, even easier. Uh, it's official, slightly offensive on Instagram. It's like, just go back like a week or so. Watch the clip. They literally grab the dumpster, light on fire. I literally, at the end of the dumpster, I just like deadpan to the right at the gas station. Like not even commentary, just like, because in the moment I'm going, what? Like, you don't think they were, you think they were trying to do it on purpose? I hope not. I hope they're just stupid. They threw fire into the, into the first floor of the condo owned by the, uh, but that would have killed us all. One of the rioters involved was Joseph Rosenbaum, and he really wasn't thrilled with the civilian guards who put out the dumpster. This next cut is from a video released by Kyle's Defense, called The Truth in 11 Minutes. It lays out what happened with footage from all over the incident. If you haven't seen it, I really recommend it. Here's the gas station incident. Tensions began to rise as protesters set a dumpster ablaze, then began pushing it toward a gas station. A guard quickly extinguished the flames, angering fire starter Joseph Rosenbaum. Rosenbaum retaliated, focusing his rage on a guard in a green t-shirt. The next few moments get a little hazy. It doesn't appear that anyone captured footage of the incident that caused Rosenbaum to chase after Kyle. This is what we do know. Moments later, just down the street, Joseph Rosenbaum is seen starting more fires. Around that same time, Kyle Rittenhouse is spotted running with a fire extinguisher. With his face concealed, Rosenbaum emerges, chasing after Rittenhouse. Okay, so you can't see it, but Rosenbaum is chasing Kyle, and Kyle is running, trying to get away from him. As he's chasing Kyle, Rosenbaum throws a plastic bag containing something heavy at Kyle. A rock, a brick, no one's entirely sure, but the trajectory the bag takes indicates there's a heavy object inside. This next cut is from another Timcast IRL, this time with Richie McGinnis, who was just feet away when Rosenbaum attacked Kyle. He describes what he saw leading up to the shooting. After I finished speaking with them is when I saw Kyle running with fire extinguisher in one hand and the gun in the other. And so I saw him running. I wanted to know why is he running? What's he running towards? With a fire extinguisher. With a fire extinguisher. What's going on here? So actually that's when I got on the phone with Shelby. I started jogging after him and that's the kind of thing where you're like, okay, some kind of new, something is about to go down. Right. I said, Shelby, where are you? And we were talking, we were trying to triangulate where we were in relation to each other. And that's right as I caught up to Rittenhouse, I was yards back from where he had, 
he was stopped in the road. And that's when some yelling started. And I told Shelby, oh, swear word, I got to go. <laughs> and that's immediately when Rosenbaum started to pursue Rittenhouse. And you can see on the video what happened from there. I'm going to pause his story there for a moment to fill in some blanks. Wisconsin Right Now interviewed two witnesses at the scene who shed more light on what happened there. Two witnesses interviewed by Wisconsin Right Now say Rosenbaum was enraged because Rittenhouse and others were using fire extinguishers to put out an arson fire in a dumpster that Rosenbaum and others were trying to push toward police cars. They also believe that Rosenbaum may have been determined to rob Rittenhouse because the teenager seemed like the weak member of the herd and had walked off by himself. The two witnesses, Justice and Dylan Putnam, were willing to put their names to it. Kyle took a fire extinguisher from someone, said Justice Putnam, who added that she saw him trying to put out the arson fire in the dumpster. That started the altercation. She said Rosenbaum was angry at Rittenhouse and other armed men who were trying to put out the fire with fire extinguishers. Rosenbaum was arguing, he said. Why did you do that? She said. She said the people associated with BLM or Antifa started throwing stuff at us. Bricks, metal. They were using hammers to get chunks off the curb to throw, she said. And the reporter adds, we observed chipped away curbs in Kenosha. So why was Rosenbaum chasing Kyle? Based on the video evidence, witness reports, and the timing, my conclusion is that Kyle used the fire extinguisher to put out some of the destruction Rosenbaum was trying to cause, and Rosenbaum wasn't going to take it a second time. The Truth in 11 Minutes points out that the man Rosenbaum was harassing at the gas station is dressed very similarly to Kyle. Same color t-shirt, similar color pants. In the dark, it's not inconceivable that Rosenbaum mistook Kyle for his previous target. I expect more will come out about those lost moments in the trial. So let's take a pause and look at who Rosenbaum was. I'm not going to get into the details on what he did. This guy's history is extremely graphic. He was convicted of sexual assault against five boys in Arizona, all between the ages of 9 and 11, including penetration in at least two of the cases. If you want the details, and I will warn you, they will probably make you sick, you can search Joseph Don Rosenbaum pre-sentencing report and read the first page. He was charged with 11 counts of being a terrible human being who should never have been allowed to walk back into society. Now I want to take you to an article from The New American. His sex offender registration began August 15, 2017, and says he was non-compliant, meaning he hadn't given authorities his address. In 2002, Rosenbaum was sentenced to 12 and a half years in prison for sex with a minor, Bail Bonds HQ reports. Prison officials cited him for disciplinary violations 42 times. Rosenbaum was required to register for the rest of his life. Now, I want to take you back to Wisconsin right now because they give us a list of those disciplinary violations. Here's just a few of them. Nine incidents of assaulting staff, four incidents obstructing staff, possession of narcotics inside the prison, tampering with a security-slash-safety device, possession of contraband, possession of a weapon, and, apparently one of his favorites, arson. Back to the incident. Rosenbaum is chasing Kyle across a car lot. Then a shot is fired. For a long time, the identity of the shooter was unknown, but Kyle's defense has identified him as Alexander Blaine, a Sin City Disciples gang member and amateur porn actor. This story is just full of winners. It's still unclear why Blaine fired, or who he was shooting at, but that was the shot that put Kyle on the defensive. That was the moment he stopped running, turned around, and defended himself. So let's go back to Richie McGinnis on TimCast IRL. Runs into the direction of the car lot where the shooting eventually took place, and me being... Uh, I, uh, dumb idiot um, <laughs> who lectured Shelby about not getting into unsafe situations ran after uh, Rosenbaum who was running after Rittenhouse and oh, wow. that's when there's a pop that went off 
That was a gunshot. Somewhere to our, well, at the time, there were so many fireworks and, right. and no uh, flashbangs going off that it wasn't clear to me what it was at the time. But what it was clear is that the, the moment that went off, Kyle stops and turns around. And we were both trailing him. And at that point, he had his gun pointed 45 degrees at the ground. And written, uh, Rosenbaum was, was advancing at him still. Mm. And there wasn't much distance. So it was only a matter of a second or two from when he stopped to when Rosenbaum was on top of him. And that's when basically Rosenbaum lunged for the front portion of Rittenhouse's gun. He shouted something that I also can't say uh, without swearing, but you can see on the video what he said right before he lunged. Put yourself in Kyle's position. You've responded to a call to help in a crisis. Now you have a viciously angry, unhinged 36-year-old man who clearly spends time at the gym chasing you, cursing you, and lunging for your weapon. Play this through. How does it play out for you? Did he, did he make physical contact with Rittenhouse's gun? They were extremely, extremely close, but he didn't. And Rittenhouse actually dodged with the rifle around his lunge. Wow. And I only know that because my focus, the moment that he turned around, went onto the barrel of his gun. Yep. Because I realized that I was now in the crossfire of whatever was about to go down. And actually, when he swung the rifle to his left, my right, my first instinct was to go to my left. But I realized Rosen, that's where Rosenbaum was and that his rifle was going to return to there so I actually stepped in the direction where he swung it oh, dude. and that's you know basically right as he swung it back is when he Ro- Rosenbaum was falling forward he fired uh, what I thought were three or four shots it was really rapid yeah um, but it looks like on the video it was four and that's when Rosenbaum collapsed to the ground and you can actually hear more pops after that what would you do ask any police officer what they would do if a purple lunged for their gun it is 100% a life-threatening crime it seems incredible that with Rosenbaum nearly on top of him, he handled his rifle so adeptly. You might be asking yourself why Kyle was carrying a gun in the first place. For the short version, we turn back to the truth in 11 minutes. Did Kyle Rittenhouse have reason to believe his life was in danger? Dozens of U.S. cities are in chaos. Millions of Americans have taken to the streets. 77-year-old David Dorn was shot to death as a pawn shop he was protecting was being looted. The voices of peaceful protests are being hijacked by violent, radical elements. One man was injured after attempting to protect a Kenosha mattress store before it eventually burned down overnight. I am not that! Not a fucking fascist died tonight! After the shooting, Kyle called someone and tried to tell them what happened. I expect his brain was probably spinning and he didn't know what to do. He didn't really have time to process much before an angry mob began to form around the incident and he made a run for the nearest police vehicles. On his way, he was identified by the mob. Someone shouted, Cranium that boy, he just shot a man, which is slang for shooting someone in the head. Others were shouting, beat him up and get him, get him. Someone, recording on a cell phone, came up running alongside Kyle and asked, what are you doing? You shot somebody? To which Kyle responded, I'm going to get the police. Hey, what are you doing? You shot somebody? A moment later, someone hit Kyle in the head, and a few steps after that, he tripped and fell to the ground. This is where his true colors show. He points his gun at the first person to run up to attack him. That person halted, put their hands up, and immediately backpedaled. Kyle didn't fire. In the next instant, another rioter jumped on Kyle. Jumped on him, airborne, then stomping down on him. There's a photo of the man's foot coming down on top of him. He fired two shots in the air. I presume he was trying to hit the man in self-defense, but it's kind of hard to aim when you're getting stomped. 
Before that man even finished hitting the ground, a third man, Anthony Huber, hit him in the back of the head with the edge of a skateboard, and then tried to take his gun. Kyle fired once, striking Huber in the chest. The man stumbled only two or three paces and then fell to the ground, and he doesn't move again after that. At this moment, the fourth rioter, Gage Grosskreutz, rushes Kyle. When he gets a rifle pointed in his direction, he puts up his hands and backs off. Again, Kyle doesn't fire. He lowers his weapon, and then Grosskreutz again rushes him, this time pulling a Glock handgun. Kyle fired once, hitting him in the arm that was holding the weapon and vaporizing a good portion of his bicep. A fifth person, approaching Kyle, puts his hands up and retreats. Again, Kyle lowers his weapon without firing. At this point, Kyle scans his environment, sees that there's no one else coming to get him, gets up, and begins making his way toward the police line for help. The whole incident, from tripping and falling, through all five attackers, to getting back up off the ground, was exactly 10 seconds. They kept coming, one after another, after another. Think about the presence of mind Kyle had to have to do what he did, and to not do what he didn't do. Each time one of his attackers retreated, he held his fire. Imagine you're surrounded by an angry mob who are egging each other on to kill you. You've seen people beaten and kicked unconscious in coverage of multiple riots. Now you're on the ground and people are coming at you in rapid succession, attacking you from several angles. You take two blows to the head, a flying stomp, and someone pulls a gun on you. Through it all, you have the presence of mind to fire only at the individuals who present a clear and immediate threat to your life without shooting at or hitting anyone else. Or would you? Would you have that presence of mind? Be honest with yourself. I've now watched those moments over and over more times than I care to count. And at the end of it all, color me impressed. So we've looked into Rosenbaum. Let's take a look at the others who attacked him. We don't know who hit him in the head, who the first person was who charged him and then backed off, or who jumped on him. But we do know the other two. Anthony Huber, the man who struck Kyle in the head with a skateboard. Felony strangulation and suffocation. Felony false imprisonment. These are not charges. These are convictions. Not exactly St. Nicholas. Gage Grosskreutz, the man who faked his retreat only to pull a gun on Kyle and rush him again. He was arrested for felony burglary and convicted of a criminal misdemeanor for possession of a firearm while intoxicated. What's interesting is that his pre-incident history is far less revealing than what came from him afterward. Again, going back to the Gateway Pundit, a friend of Grosskreutz wrote on social media, So the kid shot Gage as he drew his weapon, and Gage retreated with his gun in hand. I just talked to Gage Grosskreutz too. His only regret was not killing the kid and hesitating to pull the gun before emptying the entire mag into him. Let's gloss over the part about wishing he'd murdered a kid. I'm pretty sure that statement speaks for itself. And we'll pick apart the lie. First, the photos of Grosskreutz's injury clearly show a shot across and slightly up his bicep. From any position where he could have been drawing a weapon from his pants, the bullet could not have crossed his bicep at that angle. And the coup de grace, so to speak, in the video, both of his arms are outstretched, clearly pointing the weapon at Kyle, at close range, when Kyle fires. Neither hand is anywhere near his belt line. He is not in the process of drawing the weapon. The weapon is drawn, outstretched, and aimed at Kyle. This guy is walking around free after getting filmed trying to shoot a kid. Had Kyle hesitated long enough to aim his rifle center mass, which is where people typically train, rather than shooting the arm holding the gun, he would almost certainly be dead now. Was that presence of mind or sheer stupid luck? I have no idea. It's possible Kyle doesn't even know the answer to that. One thing is for certain. Unquestioningly, angels attended Kyle Rittenhouse in those moments. When those fateful 10 seconds ended, 
Kyle scanned his environment and then continued making his way to the police line for help. On his way, several more as-yet-unidentified shots were fired from down the street. After assessing and determining that there was no immediate threat, he continued to the police line with his hands raised in the air, trying to get their attention and cooperate. He was instructed to get out of the road as they responded to the scene. He got out of the way. He was still in danger, and having been blown off by police, he left the area and returned to his hometown where he contacted police the next day. Less than two days after the incident, the Kenosha County DA leveled charges. At that point, here's what we knew. We knew that Rosenbaum had chased Kyle, and that Kyle had shot him. At that point, we still believed that the graze to his head had been more direct and had been the cause of death, having no public report of the shots to his leg, groin area, or back. We knew that Kyle had been attacked in the street as he made for the police line and had shot two people, killing one of them and shredding the bicep of the other. We knew that Kyle had approached the police line and been ordered aside. That's it. All the critical details I've presented thus far came out after the charges were leveled. He was charged with first-degree reckless homicide for Rosenbaum, the guy who got mad, chased him down, and lunged for his weapon. I've presented the facts. Do you think what Kyle did in that moment was reckless? He was also charged with the reckless endangerment of a nearby reporter. Again, I pose the same question. Then there was first-degree reckless endangerment of an unknown male. This is the flying stomp guy who tried to stomp on his head. He was charged with first-degree intentional homicide for Huber, the guy who struck him in the head with the long edge of a skateboard and then tried to take his rifle. Then, there was attempted first-degree intentional homicide for Grosskreutz, the man who was pointing a loaded handgun at him, point-blank. Finally, he was charged with possession of a weapon by a person under 18, which is a misdemeanor and the only charge that holds any water. The only charge that has any merit is having a rifle in his possession less than a year too early. This story's part of a pattern. It's been kind of a joke that you don't laugh at in California and New York for decades, but the truth is, this is sending a very clear message that you are not to defend yourself. This time it was Kyle Rittenhouse. We're also being sent a clear message via the McCloskeys. The policies on the left are boxing us in. I can't tell you how many people I've seen online post about how these rioters better not come near their home because they've got their guns polished, shiny, and ready to go. Cassandra Fairbanks probably expressed the reality of the situation best on Timcast IRL when she recounted the night rioters showed up at her house. She was doxxed, and then they showed up and started throwing fireworks and shooting bullets into her house. She said she was hunkered down protecting her daughter and had to come to terms with the fact that if they breached her home, her life would be effectively over, but she was determined to save her daughter. As things currently stand, prosecutors are destroying people for defending their homes and their lives. We've lived in such comfort and ease for so long that it's become easy to take things like elections lightly. At some point, we decided we were too busy to take a serious look at who was contending for these positions. Now that dereliction is bearing fruit. If I'm going to keep the analogy going, the only reasonable way forward is to pick up all the rot from the ground, throw it in the garbage, and start taking better care of the tree. No sooner did the Rittenhouse story drop than legacy media began their spin declaring the BLM rioters heroes and labeling Kyle as a white supremacist and a terrorist. We have the Daily Wire to thank for record of a Washington Post article that was altered soon after they were called out. From the Daily Wire, on Twitter and in her article written with fellow Post writers Mark Guarino and Mark Berman, Jacqueline Pazer portrayed the shooting as one white man with a gun firing randomly into a crowd of protesters. Here's how the Post described the shooting. Shots were fired around 11.45 p.m. Tuesday, police said. After the first shots, a young white man carrying a rifle began running north on Sheridan Road, away from a crowd of protesters. Video shows the armed man fall to the ground and then fire multiple rounds into the crowd. The Washington Post does not mention the actions of the men pursuing the man with the rifle. 
Pizer also refers to those rioting, destroying businesses, and chasing fellow citizens as protesters. The Washington Post article, which is linked in the Daily Wire article, was, uh, I guess we'll say, updated shortly after this was published. Democrats and legacy media jumped on the white supremacist accusations right away. From the National Review, Representative Ayanna Presley tweeted out, A 17-year-old white supremacist domestic terrorist drove across state lines, armed with an AR-15. He shot and killed two people who had assembled to affirm the value, dignity, and worth of black lives. She used 35 words in that tweet, and 25 of them are verifiable lies. According to the article, she got 66,000 retweets and 235,000 likes on Twitter by the next morning. Senator Chris Murphy tweeted, I wonder why a deranged white nationalist Trump supporter would show up at a protest with a rifle and start shooting people. BET published an article titled, Kyle Rittenhouse, Seven Things to Know About 17-Year-Old White Supremacist Who Killed Two Jacob Blake Protesters. The article is full of things that are supposed to be indictments, but are mostly positives, like his involvement in the police cadet program. Even the ones that aren't positives are little more than insights into his life. Now, one of the worst offenders here was the New York Post. I don't know who Lee Brown is, but the New York Post should be ashamed for posting his article under their news section. Here's a few quotes. Kyle Rittenhouse, the baby-faced teenage vigilante charged over the deadly Kenosha shootings, was a bullied high school dropout with two all-consuming fixations, cops and guns. The 17-year-old accused killer dedicated his social media to his two obsessions, right from the cover of his now-deleted Facebook profile that had him posing with a high-powered rifle. Duty, honor, courage, blue lives matter, read a banner on his profile picture a counter to the Black Lives Matter movement to instead show solidarity with under-fire cops. He says that as if it were an indictment. Right off the bat, the bias and agenda oozes from this article. Posted under their news section, this is supposed to be objective, but it gets better. His mom also posted photos of him clad in a blue cadet uniform adorned with a badge, and the teen had participated in cadet programs with the Grays Lake Police Department, according to the Washington Post. It allows wannabes from 14 to 21 the opportunity to explore a career in law enforcement. Most of his Facebook profile was devoted to honoring law enforcement, in fact, with regular nods to the thin blue line flag, as well as tributes to officers killed in the line of duty in his home state, Illinois. Tell me what part of that describes anything but a kid aspiring to do good in the world. Lee tries to condemn Kyle, in form and fashion unbefitting a journalist, but all he succeeds in doing is demonstrating what a great kid Kyle is. Even the fact that he was bullied to the point of dropping out of high school, in light of his indomitable dedication to helping people without judgment, only exonerates him further. The New York Post article was bad, but the icing on the cake came when Joseph Biden released a tweet that read, There's no other way to put it. The President of the United States refused to disavow white supremacists on the debate stage last night. As we saw in Kenosha, and it features a photo of Kyle. Who is Kyle? What kind of kid is he? Several outlets have derisively mocked him for participation in police and fire youth organizations. He worked as a lifeguard, according to CNN. Instead of giving him gifts for his 16th birthday, he asked his friends to donate to a charity that works to forge stronger relationships between law enforcement officers and the communities they serve. That is actually noble. At an age when most teenage boys are asking their parents to buy them an Xbox so they can stay up late killing aliens and terrorists, he was working to strengthen his community. Now, I've been through every inch of footage I can find on the incident, and I couldn't find a single reference to race from Kyle, let alone a racist reference. Apparently, one of his attorneys, Lynn Wood, agrees, because he has filed a defamation lawsuit against the Biden campaign on Kyle's behalf. If you don't recognize the name Lynn Wood, 
Maybe you recognize the name Nicholas Sandman, the Covington Catholic student who took CNN and a number of other leftist publications for hundreds of millions of dollars in his own defamation lawsuit. Yeah, Lynn Wood represented him. Wood has a penchant for spicy posts on Parler, and he is really going to bat for Kyle. He wrote, I enjoy conversations on Twitter and Parler. I get to be a writer. But for 43 years, I have loved the law and being a trial lawyer. In the latter role, I am getting ready to teach Joe Biden a lesson he will never forget. He falsely accused a 17-year-old boy and prejudiced Kyle's legal rights. That was followed up later with, When I take Joe Biden's deposition on cross-examination, no wire or computer contact lens will save him. I will rip Joe into shreds. Ask witnesses who have had the misfortune of sitting across the table from me under oath. You don't mess with my children, my pup, or my clients. This is the attitude we need to have toward all this madness. It should not be tolerated. These Black Lives Matter rioters don't have any real power. They think they do, but they're only successful because they're being humored. They're useful to a handful of dirty local and state politicians and to some extent a few of the more degenerate members of Congress. The moment we pull the rug out from under them all, it's over. This needs to be handled, and we need to make our position known to our elected representatives. Our patience has been taken for granted long enough. It's time to make sure those elected representatives know they work for us, and that if they don't start taking their job seriously, they're going to be looking for a new one. For those up for re-election in three weeks, if they haven't been taking their job seriously, it's time we tell them to update their resume. I told you, I didn't think Kyle should have been out there that night. Now I'll tell you why. Local leadership should have handled it on night one. Actually, I take that back. This should have been handled way back before the Chaz was even a thing. These petulant children should not have been humored. Politicians are both encouraging and submitting to the mob, and we're tolerating those politicians. It's time to put an end to it. Law enforcement needs to be empowered to do their job, and they need to get out there and do it. For any law enforcement out there listening, this is not an indictment on you. I know most of you in these cities are probably frustrated that you've been hamstrung on this. We put ourselves behind the eight ball when we didn't take this seriously. When average people joined the bandwagon without doing their homework and seeing that the data doesn't support the claims. When we had police chiefs kneeling to Black Lives Matter. And when DAs refused to prosecute rioters and looters. We should not apologize for rejecting this violent movement. Black Lives Matter leadership threatens violence, and then their masses of useful idiots carry it out. We have heard so many times that if they don't get what they're demanding... We stand at a critical point in history. Give black people their rights, or we will burn this country to ashes. And then we see Black Lives Matter in the streets, with their signs, their banners, and their chants, burning cities to ashes, harassing people at restaurants, attacking homes, dancing on people's roofs as they harass suburban neighborhoods, shooting into those homes, and burning those homes, just as they said they would. Now, a kid is being sacrificed to the mob for doing what our elected representatives should have. Kyle should never have been out there. He should never have been needed. For my part, I support Kyle. I support the McCloskeys. And I support anyone else who has to defend themselves, their families, their homes, or their businesses against these violent, petulant children. We do have a systemic problem. Our society has sepsis. Leftist ideology and policy has infected our society at every level, and now its effects are plainly visible. If the Tree of Liberty is to be refreshed without the blood of patriots and tyrants, we're going to have to get to work clearing the rot and taking better care. All right, I'm going to call it there. As always, you can find me on Twitter and Parler at Real Into the Fray. And if you find value in what I'm doing, please share it. 
You can link it to social media, and tell your friends and family about it if you think they'll find some value in it too. We can't be quiet anymore. I'll see you all next week. Till then, be informed, stay safe, don't do anything stupid. Thank you.